Hello, sweet dorks. We are new to Who. Whether you don't know the old and only the new. Or just need an entry into classic Doctor Who. We are the chaps with suggestions for you. I'm Dan. I'm Stephen. And I'm Cole. And uh, the three of us are self-isolating right now in our own uh, lighthouses, coming to each other via Skype. Yeah, what a what a funny situation this is. We've never we've never recorded separately before. We've had Skype guests and stuff, but never mm. uh, never the three of us. Never the three of us. <laughs> yeah, it's really weird not being in the same room. As I you. think it'll be fun. Yeah, let's see how this goes. Yeah, it's going to be great. I mean, I can see you both. I can hear you both. Uh, so let's yeah, we should crack on. <laughs> and speaking of uh, lighthouses and isolation. Um, what story are we doing today? Yes, it's Horror of Fang Rock, the classic Tom Baker uh, opening story of season 15, set famously mm. in a lighthouse. It's very much the sort of um, base under siege type scenario with the lighthouse this time being the base. Mm. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. Yeah, a little bit dark and moody, a little bit of gothic horror, a little bit of uh, aliens on an island. Yeah, it's definitely a classic, this one. If you were to uh, sum up the horror of Fang Rock in a sort of one-sentence high concept, mm-hmm. what would it be? Uh, probably something like this. The Doctor and Leela arrive at night on a rocky isle in the midst of a thick fog in which stalks the fabled and fatal beast of Fang Rock. I love it. Almost like an old poem. If we're going to be talking about our TARDIS team off the top with Tom Baker we've already mentioned, of course it's Louise Jameson playing Leela as the companion. She doesn't have to wear like a leather bikini. She can actually just wear a regular outfit and act, which is really lovely. Second story in a row. Yeah, which is awesome. Not what I'd expect a savage to think of, but... Well, she's like the poshest savage in history, you know. <laughs> like, while, we're, while we're on, if we're just going to talk about costumes, like the Doctor gets to wear that awesome, like uh, that sort of wool suit with the bowler hat. Super awesome. So cool. The, I love the shot where he's got the rope around his shoulders. It's like instead of his scarf, he's mm, just got the rope. That's on the cover of uh, that's the cover of the um, target. Yeah. I mean, how many stories has Leela done by this point? This is a, her third one, I believe. So Face of Evil, and then we go into oh no, Face of Evil, uh, Robots of Death, Talons of Wing Chang. So this is a fourth one. She's been doing it for a little while, but the, the you know her and Tom Baker aren't necessarily getting along super well, right? No, no, they're not. Behind the scenes, there's a a lot of stories about them not getting on at all. As history seems to state, this is actually the production where Tom Baker, and try and imagine this, apologises for his behaviour towards Louise Jameson because she finally starts standing up for herself. She started feeling uh, more um, inclined to stand up for herself and her character. Got him to apologise. I love that. Which is pretty great. Yeah. I don't know how many people in the world have ever gotten Tom Baker to apologise for his behaviour, but <laughs> she's definitely one of them. And they're good together. They've got lots of good little moments together. You know, when they're uh, like, even at, even right at the start, when they're talking about the TARDIS, you know, she says it's, um, he's, he's like, it's small in some ways. And it, and then she says, and big and in others. Like, but big in others. Yeah. <laughs> it's really great. Just like lots of little bits of backs and forths like that. So, I mean, that is our TARDIS team, just the two. This time round. So maybe we should move into our production team oh, the Williams era. of uh, Horror of Fang Rock. We've got uh, producer Graham Williams. Yeah, this is where it begins, I guess. Not the first story that Graham Williams produced because they sort of did this out of order. And I think this was the third or the fourth one that they did of the season. Uh, we'll talk about why later on. But yes, the beginning of the Graham Williams era of Doctor Who uh, as the producer starts with with this one. Williams comes in after Hinchcliffe, who who really effectively was replaced because largely there was a a feeling amongst the BBC executives that the show had got very dark and, and very violent as well. Um, that is 
probably the case, actually, looking back at a number of stories, whether it's the Centauran experiment or the Deadly Assassin. Infamously, there's a a cliffhanger in part three of Deadly Assassin where where Tom Baker's face is held underwater and then we sort of cut, we get a a freeze frame. And that's supposedly terrified a nation, so much so that Mary Winehouse, who was a campaigner against violence on Doctor Who, Mm-hmm. kicked up a massive stink and oh, yeah. in the end it, it cost Philip Hinchcliffe his job essentially he was moved on into onto a program called Target a program that Graham Williams was actually producing and they swapped so Graham Williams <laughs> came in and he was basically told lighten it up and not not have it so violent and I don't know if that quite sort of uh, fulfills the brief here with uh... <laughs> yeah, by the time he got to here he must have chucked that out the window right? yeah there's a couple of moments in Fang Rock which we should talk about in regards to uh, that I think I mean the reason why I guess is because moving on to the script editor Bob Holmes is still there mm. and this is a story very much uh, to his tastes I guess it's, it's written by Terrence mm. Dix so there is a bit of a, a holdover element of the Hinchcliffe era in the horror of Fang Rock and that's probably why we get a, a pretty uh, gruesome story this time around as well <laughs> I, lo- I love that Dix came back for this I think this is fantastic. So, I mean, Steve, run us through a little bit of sort of how that came about. Mm. It had a lot to do with Robert Holmes. Yeah, it did. Um, Largely, Robert Holmes was firefighting, I guess, on a number of other scripts in season 15 and just didn't have the time to rewrite what would have been a a previous Terrence Sticks script called The Vampire Mutations. Uh, And they they weren't going to go ahead with that because basically, again, the BBC top brass came in and said, look, we've got a a Dracula production underway at the moment. We don't want any sort of Mm. uh, other shows taking away the limelight from that so drop the vampires and of course who do they turn to but Terence Sticks the man who can definitely write a very very adroit <laughs> script at almost no notice uh, and yeah. it's incredible yes. to think that this is a replacement the master written in a hurry the absolute master yeah, it's actually absolutely, yeah, absolutely brilliant. So, so he got paid for his first one and got paid for this one, and he, and he turned it around. And uh, I think in the end, it was the the third story that was um, filmed of this season. It's, so he actually did it quite quickly. Yeah, and it's so well paced. There's lovely writing in this one. Uh, it's also weird that it's it was like going to be a vampire story, and um, they wanted to, you know, they wanted to pull it because like Dracula was screening at the same time. And and uh, but, the, but one of the things one of the weird parts about it is that there's a character in it called Harker, which is like yeah the name of several <laughs> characters from Dracula, which is uh, yes, that's true. And there's heaps of good like t- like standard awesome Terrence Dicks world building in this one. Um, I always remember. There's a bit where the doctor says, um, he says, like, do you think you're, you're just a little speck in the galaxy? You know, do you think you're the only planet in the galaxy with, with intelligent life? Dix is always like trying to push our minds out and show us that like in his universe, a whole galaxy filled teeming with life and different civilizations and cultures. Um, and there's always there's always lots of little hints to that mm. in his writing, you know, like even to the point where they they, they refer to the Milky Way as Mudder's Spiral, like uh, like yes. you know, that's the Time Lord's like the Time Lord's name for the Milky Way. Just the idea that like another race might have a different name for our galaxy, or that like an alien like the Rutan might consider the way we look ridiculous, you know, like we're used to seeing bug-eyed monsters on Doctor Who who look really silly. Having an alien consider us to look silly. Like just little hints like that, it always blew my mind as a kid, and like it's really good at pushing that world building and making you think yeah. outside the story. And I don't know if that's that's Dix or Holmes, but I think between the two of them, they definitely, yeah, d- that's definitely a hallmark of the writing of yeah. this era. What I find amazing about um, the inspiration that Holmes gave to Dix to write this story at very short notice was that he literally gave him a poem. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it's actually a poem that gets heard later mm-hmm. on in the story. And it's uh, it's by Wilfred Gibson, and it's called Flannan Isle, written in 1912. It's based upon true events, apparently, that happened in 1900, around the time this story set, when a supply ship discovered a lighthouse crew had abandoned 
a lighthouse and they just vanished without a trace. I had no idea. Yeah, so cool. yeah, that's right. So that was like sort of just a piece of inspiration that Holmes gave to him mm. and said, you know, I want a story mm. based with very few characters set in some sort of reclusive, you know, environment, much like a lighthouse. Yeah, very much like the Mary Celeste, that mystery. Dix basically took that. And also, he's apparently cited a short story from 1951 by Ray Bradbury called The Foghorn, which was about like an aquatic dinosaur, which had survived in the ocean's depths and was attracted to the sound of a lighthouse foghorn. So Hmm. those two inspirations are what put this all together. So cool. I love that. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. There's there's another reason for it, or two rather. Firstly, they definitely needed a budget conscious script. So hence the story being set in, in a lighthouse. And with few characters as well. The reason for that is Philip Hinchcliffe overspent dramatically in season 14 and left very little money indeed for Graham Williams uh, when he took the job in season 15. So definitely sort of budget conscious. (laughs) He didn't spend the entire (laughs) £10. I think they got to 11 in the end. Um, <laughs> but the other reason is actually a bit of Robert Holmes having a bit of afters with, uh, with Terence Dix. See, back in The Time Warrior, Terence Dix, when he was script editor, said to Robert Holmes, write me a story about the uh, medieval times. And so we got The Time Warrior. Of course, uh, Robert Holmes turned around and said, I don't know anything about uh, the medieval times. Yeah. In the same way, yeah. Terence Dix turned around at this point and said, I don't know anything about lighthouses. So it was a, it was a bit of Bob Holmes <laughs> getting his uh, getting his back at, uh, at Terence. That's lovely. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, lovely little story. Maybe we should move on right now to our director. Yes, Paddy Russell. So Paddy yeah. Russell is one of the mm. great directors of Doctor Who, famous mostly for this story yeah. and also the Pyramids of yeah. Mars. Yeah. Very atmospheric stories, both of them. She brings that to this as well. As we mentioned earlier, you know, the three of us are actually Skyping each other from three separate lighthouses around the globe, our own separate lighthouses, just for us. But I've got to say, guys, that's not my foghorn going off. Whose foghorn is that? Dan, is that your foghorn? It's not mine. Not mine. Steve, is it yours? Oh, yes. It's yours, Steve. What's going on? Yeah, my light's gone out. Hang on. There's a ship coming towards the rocks. Oh, God. Keep Steve, sounding sound. that foghorn. Steve, turn, turn the light on. I can't. It's gone. Turn the light on, Steve. Shoot a flare. All right. Shoot a flare. Wait. They're going to run aground, man. Oh, no. Too late. <gasps> Who are they? Uh, just a bunch of toffs. <laughs> so, spoiler zone has arrived. <laughs> yes. That uh, ill-devised piece over Skype. It has beached itself on our... Barren Isles. <laughs> the Rocky Shores. So we're into spoiler zone. Okay, let's let's talk about immediately the atmosphere and particularly I think the setting and the use of the setting and the and the direction by Patty Russell is, is absolutely brilliant in establishing this here, don't you think? Yeah, I do. And you know, there's a sort of a I guess a bit of a happy accident around mm. around all of that because uh, there was just no room um, at BBC Centre for them to film Horror Fang Rock. Like everything was just fully booked. Uh, they ended up having to go to uh, Pebble Mill. In Birmingham, yeah. In Birmingham, yes. Uh, marking apparently the first time in history that Doctor Who had done a studio setup outside of London. Mm. Apparently there was some sort of misgivings with the, the crew for Horror Fang Rock about doing that. Not only sort of filming outside of London, but just the idea of having to install equipment, mm. bring in sets uh, into a space that they you know really hadn't bagged on using. But uh, the reason I call it a happy accident is that apparently Pebble Mill were so desperate to attract more productions away from London 
that they just all pulled together and made this exceptional effort to be as helpful and efficient as possible, which I think is fantastic. Yeah. They wanted to put Pebble Mill on the map. They wanted to show they could pull it off. Oh, it's amazing. And didn't it work? I mean, the atmosphere and the sort of like foreboding claustrophobia and the fog, I mean, it just comes out so great. It looks wonderful. One thing I love about the direction is in Fang Rock is just those shots of the actual uh, f- the island of Fang Rock, those jagged rocks sort of sticking up out of the fog. Everything's swelled in fog, mm. which must help mm. production a lot with a low budget yeah. as well. But my God, yeah. it looks fantastic. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And like they, they only, the whole thing takes place over like uh, four, mm. like it's, it takes mm. place in four rooms on the lighthouse and then the outside. And they managed to like make that look super interesting, even though it's only a couple of sets and, <laughs> um, and you know, a $10 sailboat. But, you know, hey, back to, you know, fun fact, back to the fog. Uh, it was a great way to cover some of the um, embarrassments of that set because, you know, I've seen some screenshots since watching uh, from the set and literally they're just walking on floorboards. You've just got you've just got foam rocks placed around the place on a wooden floor with Tom and Leela in these shots sort of wandering around. <laughs> so it's like, wow, yeah, fog works wonders. Bring on the smoke <laughs> machines. <laughs> I'd like to bring up, if we're going to talk about sets as well in regards to direction, I'd like to bring up the actual la- the uh, lighthouse itself, or rather the set for the lamp house, which is situated at the very top mm. of, uh, of any lighthouse. Now, this set in itself mm. would have literally just been a ground level, very minimal set. They used a lot of CSO in filming on that set as well. But the, mm. I don't know what it is about the way it's directed. I feel like I'm on top of a lighthouse. I feel like I am actually up high <laughs> it, it like and it looks so good like uh, there are a couple there are a few lighthouses that are just like that from that time mm. along the south coast of WA that I've been to and like it looks yeah. exactly mm. the same like super yeah. cramped yeah. up the top tiny little lamp lamp like lamp room and then the ring around it which is just like so vertiginous and scary to be up there yeah even though it's like a fairly mm. basic set if you just buy it straight away and they've got the fog rolling through and you just mm. feel like you've mm. got a sense of space and height you know it's great I don't know how they did it I love the whole confined aspect mm. of the entire set for the lighthouse. Really, it's a, we're led to believe mm. this is a barren rock that they're on, and it's everything's so pokey as it would be. The rooms are tiny, the crew's quarters are tiny, the mm. winding staircases that they shoot on that go up around yeah. to the to the top are just so pokey and and small. Like it, it's 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 confining. Yeah, and I think the 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 sound design adds a lot to that as well. You oh, have that sort of intermittent blast of the the fog oh. horn that sort of helps to reinforce that setting. Oh yeah, definitely. The fog horn like repeating all the way through. Like after a while, you start to yeah. not notice yeah. it, and it just becomes this like foreboding, like background ominous doom thing. Like it's just like it's great. The fog horn is amazing. I love that they just kept it all through all the way through the episode through the story. It's great. Yeah. Yeah, and there's you know there's moments of music as well where the foghorn goes and it, it becomes part of the music almost. It mm. actually aids the music and the music aids the foghorn. It's quite mm. strange, but just that ominous blast across the rocks. And, yeah. and talking of music, it's it's Dudley Simpson again. This is another one of these classic scores that I definitely remember from back in the day. Just beautiful and haunting and atmospheric. Yeah, and as you say, it very much adds to the to the atmosphere of the piece. Mm, definitely love a bit of DS. <laughs> Like we've you know we've spoken about the Doctor and Leela at length, but we should talk a little bit about our supporting cast yeah. here. Um, yeah, like straight away there's like yep. the Lighthousemen. Oh, yep. I just love them; they're great. Yep. we just join them, and straight away they're like, there's an old guy who's like talking about the old ways and oil lighthouses, and then a, you know like a young upstart <laughs> who's talking about electric power, 
And like they're immediately like sitting around in like oil jerseys eating Bovril and it's just I just love it. They're great. I want to come back to that scene a bit later to talk about something a little bit different, but yeah, I agree. You've got yeah, you've got the old sailor, you know, he's full of riddles of the sea. He's uh, you know, he believes the island's cursed and all the rest of it, and you know. Um, you've got Ben, the you know the the upstart, I guess, um, and then you've got Vince, the more sort of uh, the younger, doe-eyed, more sort of naive, uh, but lovable uh, young uh, lighthouse keeper. That's uh, you know he's still learning the ropes. So dumb, so dumb. Yeah, and it's unfortunately <laughs> to his detriment. Yeah, so dumb. But- you know, like you know how the doctor and his companion always like get caught standing over a corpse, like holding holding the murder weapon. This time, yes. this time they don't get caught, but like the doctor tells, he's like, Vince, he's like, no, stay here. I'm going to go downstairs. And then like, then Vince goes down with him afterwards and finds like a corpse. And it's like, oh, who did that? Oh, I can't imagine who that must have been. It's like, like, they, like they just like make themselves even more suspicious than normal. It's like any, and then, you know, it goes, it takes, it takes Ruben to figure out that maybe they're like, maybe they're sus. He's, he's so dumb. And Ruben sort of comes across not just a, old stick in the mud mm. but maybe a little bit racist oh yeah he doesn't like foreigners um you know he's immediately thinking okay they're spies but what does he go to he's like okay it's the ruskies it's the frogs germans and ruskies. Yeah. frogs and ruskies you can't trust any of them <laughs> and i love that scene with ruben where he's just sort of like and i won't have you talking in any of that lingo of yours you know you'll be talking straight with yeah. me sort of thing is just sort of immediately on the back foot they can't be they can't be english they must be spies and of course they've got to have something to do with uh ben's death yeah. Which was the first death mm. of the story? Yeah, really early on, isn't it? Mm. We don't we don't see much of Ben at all before he gets just you know bumped off by the rootin. We only get a few moments with his fabulous mustache. Yes, <laughs> but there's uh, plenty more yeah. amazing mustaches to come later on. So you know, like Skinsdale and uh, <laughs> oh, is there ever? Oh man, you start at like Palm, like the you know the crew of the steamship. You've got Palmerdale, you've got Colonel Skinsdale, uh, just and then uh, Harker. Even Harker's got a got a great mo. So many great mo's. Yeah, and he's he's a lowly crewman, but he's still got a smashing yeah, mo. Amazing. <laughs> and he's like an old sailor as well and you've got the young you've got the old skin cell who's kind of part of the old guard and he's like a gentleman and a soldier and then you've got Palmerdale who's like a young you know brash he's an asshole basically but he's a you know he's a young brash oh, a, financier of the new set he's a complete wooster he's a, <laughs> you know, you know, yeah, wooster. Totally. He's just, he is such a wooster except he's a lot nastier yeah yeah Yes, he's a lot he's master. A he's not so innocent, yeah. And then apparently his his young secretary, Adelaide. Yeah, I don't think she's just his secretary somehow. But no. Uh, they're, they're a thoroughly unlikable lot. Yeah, I think Leela speaks sort of acts for all of us when she's like, she just yeah. can't stand uh, Adelaide. She has no patience for the screaming, you know, like she's <laughs> oh. great. She really slaps her as well. Oh, yeah. Doesn't she ever? Apparently Louise Jamison was uh, uh, the actress who played Adelaide, um, asked her to slap her and not, not to hold anything back and she really whacked her, which I love. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> oh, gosh. That's interesting. And look, you know, in regards to Adelaide's character, look, yeah, she grates. And it's obvious that she's been played that way on purpose to be the screamer and the fainter and all the rest of it. But I just love those scenes with Leela where she rolls her eyes or she just doesn't, she just can't hack this like idiot woman. It's it's alien to the, to Leela for a woman to behave that way. All the toffs are jerks, right? Like you've got, uh, you know, Palmer's, uh, Palmerdale uh, is, she's obsessed with money. He doesn't care about people's lives. It turns out he's obviously a bit of a crook as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Adelaide's deeply irritating. Um, yeah. And uh, Skinsdale is like more concerned with honour than um, than decency. He more about tarnishing his good name than anything else. But yeah. So it's a little bit of like a rare like um, 
reverse class racism from the reverse classism from the BBC. That's there. true, isn't it? Jerks and all the working class people are like, you know, old salts like Ruben, who should be should be listened to, but then they, they you know, they're not listened to, and then look what happens. Yeah, <laughs> and they are they are all old salts, and they're also yeah. salts of the earth, aren't they? Because Harker, the the crewman who survives from the the maroon ship, he's like that as well. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of like old versus new in this story. There's you know the the sort of concept yeah. of the old um, lighthouse, which would never like, have been affected by the Ruton in the same way, versus the electric one. Yeah, oil versus is electricity absolutely yeah and then there's like Ruben the old the old Ruben part of the old guard and then you've got Vince who's the young upstart and then even you've got like Skinsdale and, and Palmerdale who are obviously cut from very different cloth and come yeah. from different areas yeah. it, that's kind of like a I think because there's this clues in this story that it takes place like around the turn of the century like around the end of the Victorian mm. era and the start yeah. of the Edwardian yeah. era because they say in the 20s and they say like the, the Beast of Fang Rock happened 80 years ago in the 20s so it must be around 1900 1901 mm. which is when the Victorian era ends yeah I think you're right Dan so it's kind of about the old changing into the new that's that's one of the things that like goes all the way through the story Mm. it it does get referenced as being as you say dan quite right in the early 1900s yeah so it must be around that time so yeah that that always strikes me with this story that theme of the old take old making way for the new um and you know in the like throughout the whole story the lighthouse is like slowly shut down piece by piece you know the light stops working and even towards the end, even like the old, the, the oldest tech, the, the man-made, the, so the man-powered, coal-powered boiler, which powers the foghorn, even that fails right down until the end. Yeah. But then right at the end, the lighthouse, they use a lighthouse to, to save the day. Mm. Let's, let's talk a little bit about the plot of the horror of Fang Rock, seeing as we're getting into the guts of it now. Yeah, well, everybody dies. <laughs> this is something I, I can't quite get my head around because... It's pretty rare, right? Yeah. Well, it's the, it's the only time in the classic series, I believe, that the entire supporting cast dies. There isn't a single survivor at the no, end of this. No, not at all. Not the highest death count. Mm. Not the highest death count, but definitely the most gruesome in terms of just the, the sheer portion, I guess, of supporting characters that are wiped out by, mm. by Terran sticks here. Yeah, it's very much um, sort of that... We've got our base under, under siege motif, of course, but you've got this outside menace that's infiltrating the solitude of the lighthouse and it's sort of picking them off one by one. Mm. And it doesn't stop yeah. until, unfortunately, they're all dead, <laughs> apart from the Doctor and Leela. There, there was no moment with the Doctor, no sort of gravitas about the fact that he didn't get to save anyone. Yeah. Now, okay, sure, he saved mankind, mm. but he didn't get to save, or he wasn't rather able to save anyone who was involved in his immediate vicinity like during this story yeah that's true (laughs) yet there was no moment of him saying anything about it i think he works in spite of that actually i think it's obviously mirroring the ballad of flannan isle where there's no survivors to tell the tale so i think that's a heavy influence on it but it does come unexpectedly and the fact that everyone kind of dies means that nobody's really safe and with each passing death throughout the entire story the stakes are sort of raised each time yeah. I think we have you know one death apiece in the first two episodes then it's two in the third and then we get four deaths in the in the last including the Rutan so it just sort of you know builds that momentum and at the end of it yeah it's particularly effective as a story in terms of the the atmosphere and the sort of doom laden mood of it I never, even, I never even thought of that Steve you just said um, because there's no survivors it'll probably be another another like tale that people another will tell tale. The Beast of Fang Rock. I never even thought of that yeah. because there's no survivors. Sure. They'll find yeah. a bunch of corpses and it'll be a story told for another 80 years, 100 years. <laughs> That's not great. Let's yeah. think about that for a bit because Ruben's got the story about like previous lighthouse keepers on Fang Rock. <laughs> the yeah. two that died, the one that went mad. Um, and it was mm. all to do with the curse and the Beast of Fang Rock. Let's talk a little bit about the Rutan, the, uh, the alien menace in this story. 
I really like it. This is the only time that we see the Rutans in, in Doctor Who. I love that they're this sort of amorphous, gestalt entity that can take on other forms. I know that it's not particularly well realised. It's the 1970s yeah. budget on Doctor well, Who, particularly in season 15 when they had very little budget indeed. It wouldn't be the first or the last time. No, no. I mean, I, you, can, you can forgive the jiggly snot blob, yeah. you know, the, the electric, the yeah. electric booger. The that, electric uh, booger. Oh, but I like that. Yeah. I, 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 love, I just love that it's uh, it's Queen, you know, like Terrence Dick says all lately. All monsters just should be yeah. Queen. Absolutely. There's definitely some <laughs> bubble wrap in there, right? Whenever there's a green... I feel like there might be some bubble wrap in there. <laughs> I really love. I really love at the end when it melts down the stair. The stairwell. That was cool. Really, I thought that part actually looked really good. Yeah. Yeah. Look. I, yeah. I, I don't mind it. I think I've probably seen it too many times, and from too young an age to really sort sure. of spot its flaws. And even though it does sure. look quite cheap, I still like it. I, I think what works particularly well, though, is the fact that we don't see it until part four. And yes. you know, mm. like all things, the, the less you know about a, a terror or a horror like this, the more frightening it becomes because it's your imagination that comes into play instead of the the actual sort of special effects, I guess. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, seeing things like tendrils sort of emerging and, um, you know, off screen killing people and screams and all that kind of stuff is really quite effective. There's that scene where Reuben or the Rutan Reuben is standing in his room just sort of impassively and glowing green and that terrified yeah, me as yeah. a kid particularly because yeah. um it just looks so inhuman who was the actor who played reuben yeah, colin douglas yeah. colin douglas he's fantastic in both the role of reuben and the role of the rutan reuben yeah the Ru- superb absolutely wonderful yeah but even in part four when we do have the you know the showdown i guess between the doctor and a, and a blob of what is it probably plastic bags and some some jelly on the stairs there yep. i still really enjoyed yeah. that i think tom baker's given one of those great lines mm, about no, you know the the delusions of a of a despot or something like that tin pot despot he calls him and i don't like your face it's one of yeah. the great put downs by by tom's doctor certainly to a villain um, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, yeah, it doesn't look great to a modern audience, but I, I have to forgive it. I just love it so much. Yeah, I don't think it's as much to forgive. I, I mean, I love, I do love when he, when Tom Baker sits down and they just have a chat about what's going on. I always love that. Yeah, you, yeah. You finally get the info dump, but it's quite a good one. And I just love the idea that they're sort of tying it to the Sontarans because when I, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I was going to talk about <laughs> yes. that as well. Like, I love it. I love it for 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 two reasons. Yeah. I think there's a sort of payoff to um, the other side of that that Sontara root and wall, mm. uh, which we don't have anywhere else in Doctor Who. Yeah. So that's pretty cool from a sort of mythos perspective. But I also really like it because, again, sort of going back to, to Dixon Holmes, it's Holmes who creates the Sontarans in a story he didn't want to write in The Time Warrior. Yeah. And here's Dix who, yeah. who picks up the Rutans um, as the, the enemies of the Sontarans in a story that he didn't particularly want to write for, for Bob Holmes this time. <laughs> I love the... Uh, I love the... Yeah, we get the other side because, you know, when we had the Time Warrior, you get the Sontarans... As a, I remember as a kid watching it and having the Sontarans described as a race who are living in a perpetual state of war. Mm. But they never really talk about who it's with. And then you get to see the other side mm. of this coin, finally... And um, you find out that it's a sort of a, a race of like sentient um, aquatic boogers who <laughs> once like somehow took over the entire Milky Way like, and, and ran, yes. ran mud a spiral. I love it. I really love them. Okay. I think when they can climb up, they can climb up lighthouses. They can electrically shock people. Uh, oh, oh man, of course. And we get oh, my favorite, my favorite alien trope, Monster Vision. We get to see through the Rutan's eyes. Love it. Oh yeah, Monster Vision. (laughs) You get to see him stalk people. We get it pretty early on as well in episode one with the first death too. It's pretty cool. Yeah, I guess it's a good way to not have to show the monster. You get to see through the monster's eyes, especially exactly. I just far more effective. It works better when you see less. I think you know. Yeah, less is more. 
particularly again with the the soundscape that accompanies it, there's the sort of crackling of electricity, the the warble mm. of something sciency and science fictiony, I guess, about the alien as it moves around, and that yeah. that sort of tunnel green vision, and again, just that that entire sort of sense of we don't know what this is, what could it possibly be, really effective in that first th- in those first three parts. You talked about the doctor's put down before, Steve. It was excellent. Uh, I did make a list, like I often do, a name calling <laughs> checklist from this one. There's some pretty good ones in this in this. Uh, story the insubordinate mm. ruffian was yelled out at one point my favorite uh there was a sorry perfidious so-called friend but my favorite i think is a jumped up little money grubber at the colonel <laughs> yeah, uh, Palmdale. yeah jumped up little money grubber that was good <laughs> it's really he says it was he says it was such vitriol you yeah really feel yeah it, it is it's great. the delivery isn't it it's, yeah let's talk a little bit about episode four after everything's after everyone's dead and the rutan mothership's been destroyed something interesting happens with leela now because she's been told the doctor says i told you not to look back when the blast happens mm. Uh, but she does, and she says she's blinded. I love this scene because this is the savage in Leela. She's like, "Doctor, slay me!" Yes, I've, I've been blinded, um, and, and you know he's like, "So good." He's just like, you know, chill. Like he, it's not what you think. He's, you yeah, you could be it's okay. Clear. But she gets her sight back, um, and he says, "Oh, the blast has changed the color of your eyes. Mm, yeah. So now your eyes are blue instead of brown." And all this decision can boil down to was the fact that apparently Louise Jameson hated her contact lenses. They were aggravating. Yeah. She was made to wear these brown contact lenses. She didn't want to wear them anymore. So they literally just wrote it into the last part of the script. Uh, well, if she doesn't want to wear them anymore, let's just turn her eyes blue. <laughs> I think it's quite <laughs> and good. We, and then she can just not wear them anymore. I've, I've read that so many times, uh, but I've never been able to find an explanation anywhere as to why the hell they wanted her to wear brown contacts in the first place. Do you know, Steve? No, I don't. I think it just sort of goes with the depiction of the, the savage, I think. So we have in early photos of Louis, uh, of Louise Jamison, uh, it's quite bad, actually. She's sort of blacked up almost. Um, you know, there's that sort of, again, the savage kind of uh, stereotype that's applied to her. Mm. She's dressed in skins. Mm. And I think there's, a, there's meant to be sort of like a, you know, she's... Uh, don't stick we're, a bone through her nose, Steve. No, well, this is it, right? So there's there's this. So you, I mean, you're, of, trying to, you're, you're trying to you're sort of trying to get very around to the point that um, someone with blue eyes can't be a savage in the eyes of the BBC in the 70s. Well, I think that's very much hit it on the head. Yeah, you think that's what it I is? Think, I think it's much yeah. more so the fact that you know that what you said, Dan. People with blue eyes aren't savages. It's people with brown eyes and dark skin, uh, which is you that's, know that latent colonial view, perhaps that was was drawn upon when they made this decision about um, what the character of Leela would be like, yeah. Wow. That's a real deep cut of like BBC. It is, isn't it? Yeah, totally. Wow. Because I, yeah, I've been trying to think of that for years and I was like, that can't be the reason, like some weird like Aryan eugenic thing like that. Oh, savages can't have blue eyes. Do you think that's, maybe that's what it is? No, I think that's pretty close to the truth if it isn't. Wow. I would, I'd love to know the answer. Well, I, yeah, I kind of, now that you've explained it that way, I I kind (laughs) of agree. But hey, look at this, the decision to reverse it too. Sure. Happens in well, the they were story. listening to her at this point, I guess. Now mm. she's got the respect of Tom Baker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, now that yeah, now that she got an apology from Tom, she probably uh, got a bit more leeway. In- yeah, <laughs> and a new contract, right? So she had yeah. three stories last uh, season, and then I guess there was the option to continue and uh, a new contract uh, written up at that time. And in that contract, mm. it was get rid of the uh, the contact lenses was one of Louise's uh, requests. Yeah. I think this is one of my favorite. I think this might be my favorite Leela episode ever because she has so much mm. to do in this one, and they've they like they flesh her out a little bit more. Like mm. 
there's little things about her from a, like from a tribe like where she says you know you should learn from your like elders, the guys yeah. like oh, you should listen to the elders of your tribe yeah yeah, yeah. you should listen to your old ones <laughs> yeah um, and she always treats Reuben with respect mm. and then um, there's a bit where she's like yeah I used to believe in that sort of astrology crap too but uh, it's better the doctor taught me about science and she says it is better to believe in science and like isn't that an awesome isn't that a great phrase yeah. for for right now um they yeah and the, like the yeah the clothes and the, and the hair like i love how they managed to like get the hair everyone's hair lo- and mustaches looking quite edwardian quite victorian but like also it's just 70s as hell i don't know, you know <laughs> yes. they, they managed to do that and in, as an example colonel skin sales that is crazy that he looks like a <laughs> the hair the mutton chops his big boof yeah hair. it's crazy <laughs> it's great he looks like a thundercat yeah he does <laughs> yeah his big boof hair <laughs> Guys, uh, a few episodes back, I introduced a new segment to the show called uh, Gentlemen, What Did We Forget? <laughs> Gentlemen, have we forgotten anything? Uh, yeah, I've, I've got one thing. Um, so, so one of the reasons why I think Horror of Fang Rock works so well is it's very much what, what's called a chamber piece. And, and that's actually a musical term. It comes from, from music in the sense that it refers to a piece of, of originally classical music composed for a really small group of instruments which could all fit in a chamber, uh, obviously a chamber of a, of a palace somewhere, so someone rich would have these musicians come in and play for them. But the trick was to actually have mm. a, a small number of, of instruments uh, to, to play these pieces. And, and it very much sort of uh, applies also to, to literature here as well, because we have, I guess, you know, a, a small number of players as, or, or actors or, or roles in this story. But it's also the way that it all sort of hangs together. Every part plays a part. So we have every plot element comes together and it resolves the entire narrative. So, for instance, Palmerdale is carrying these diamonds and it's the diamonds that are used at the end to blow up the root and ship mm. and it's just wonderful the way that it sort of pulls together in that way and you know we were talking earlier about it being set you know just overnight in in a, in a lighthouse yeah uh, that's another way in which it sort of adds to that so as a chamber piece i think this is this is really a fantastic small little story that just fits together perfectly like a like a beautiful piece of chamber music that's really nice yeah yeah tight little cast Small number of sets, low budget. It's great. And low, low stakes as well. Yeah. Yeah. Love the use of the diamonds in the sort of, in the, in the whole sort of um, greed will get you killed thing. Uh, you know, the doctor just, just love the idea that like they, he gets the diamond he needs and he th- just casts the rest of Chucks them down him. the stairs. He mm-hmm. doesn't need them. Yeah. And skin sale to his, oh, to yeah. his detriment tries to pick them all up. Yeah. And he's the way, he, the greed in the end <laughs> took his life. Yeah, I loved how the yeah, doctor chucks them away. Even though they're probably like diamonds are probably valuable in any like <laughs> civilization in the galaxy because they're super hard, right? They're useful. Why don't throw them away, man? Yeah. Keep them for the TARDIS. I did notice that like when Adelaide's introduced to Vince, he's like, "My name is Vince Hawkins," and then she's like, "Thank you, Hawkins," and immediately calls him by his last name, like <laughs> yes. as if he's a servant. Yeah. Oh, well, that was great. The only other funny thing I noticed was like when they're up at the top of the lighthouse presumably a super windy spot no one's like no one's like hairsprayed 70s hair moves an inch like there's no wind not a breath of wind <laughs> as you mentioned earlier dan having been up lighthouses yourself and i have yeah. too as a child that hair yeah. should be plastered away <laughs> no from mind. their faces that those mows should just be like g-force mows. just Ed- edwardian hairspray yeah. man it's strong stuff i want to talk about a film i've seen recently oh yeah yeah and the way i see the connections to horror of fang rock they're quite obvious, but it, it, a couple of weeks back, watching a film, I watched a film by a director, a writer director called Robert Eggers called The Lighthouse, which starred Willem Dafoe and Robert Pattinson. Oh, right. Have you guys seen it? No, no, I've not. Before I get into it, I will say that if anyone hasn't seen The Lighthouse and they want to see The Lighthouse, I'm probably about to spoil the ending. So uh, fast forward 
Um, or keep listening because it is pretty interesting what I've got to say. Yeah, it's in black and white. It's it's a psychological horror film. It, it's extremely art house. To our younger sweet dorks, this one is not for you. Parents, please do not show this one to your kids. Uh, it's a superb film, but it's probably a little bit too real. Bigger bigger body count than Fang Rock? Uh, no, there's not. it's not so much about the body count. It's more about the eerie similarities to horror Fang Rock that are in this film. Okay. So, okay, you know, it, look, mm. essentially it's about two... Two lighthouse workers, one old, one young. The old one acting a lot like Reuben, with you know, you know, the, mm. the conspiracies of the ocean and the riddles mm-hmm. of the sea, and you know, you know, you'll be cursed yeah. if you heard a, 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 an island bird and all that sort of stuff. Um, and a young one, a young wiki. This is set back in the days when oil's being used in lighthouses, and they're working on a remote island, much like Fang Rock. Yeah, right. Uh, and the film, basically, in the film, they both develop cabin fever through alcoholism. Now, um, I'm looking at... I think it's kind of fun to think that the characters in The Lighthouse are the same two Reuben talks about in The Curse of Fang Rock, <laughs> the one's previous. Oh, my God, Brilliant. Cole, that's amazing. It's like, you know, two died, one went mad. Like, they, they you know... And also, something else I want to point out. You notice that there's this whole thing about, like, having no alcohol in The Lighthouse. It's, 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 oh, it's forbidden, yeah. you know, because, like... Palmerdale wants a brandy. He's like, get me a brandy, man. And they're like, no, it's not allowed. It's not regulations. Damn your regulations. Now, is it possible that because these two in the lighthouse went rogue on alcohol to the point where they're mixing kerosene with honey because they run out of rum and they start drinking that, that it's just like, all right, no more alcohol in lighthouses, guys. (laughs) So you think um, they're not only the reason why people don't drink in lighthouses anymore, but also they're from the from Ruben's legend, right? Well, I I don't, I don't necessarily think think it. I just like to. No, no, no. Isn't that no? That's great, and also that would make the beast, the beast of Fang Rock, is actually isolation. Yeah, yeah. So like, it's an extremely art house film. It's quite graphic. It's. yeah, like I said before, cool. it's not for the young ones. Anyone under 18, don't watch it. Do not tell your parents that you heard about it on this podcast either, <laughs> if you do. Um, yeah, but for all the adults out there of our sweet dogs that enjoy art house cinema and uh, a good psychological horror, check it out, The Lighthouse. So uh, is it that time? Are we at, uh, gentlemen, are we going to do Crackers or Clangers? Oh, I think it's that time. Let's do it. Yes, Dan, you're quite right. It's that time again to play that little game we like to call Crackers or Clangers. Okay, without further ado, we're going to talk about the cliffhangers of Horror of Fang Rock. Were they crackers? Were they clangers? And why? Owing to the malfunctioning lighthouse and poor weather conditions, a steam yacht runs aground on Fang Rock. Mm. Now, that is our cliffhanger. It's an integral part of the story. How does it work as a cliffhanger? I do like the voices that you hear coming from the ship where people are, you know, when you see, oh, you're like, oh, no, the, you see the, yeah. the flares being fired over, the flares illuminate the, yeah. the rocks. I do love that. That looks really cool. I'm always up for a shoddy model too. Yeah, I do. I do love a splintery crap model. I love it. I have a soft spot yeah. for this one. Is it a cracker or a clanger? Ooh, um, well, it's, it's, it's. It's it's scary for one thing because like uh, Ruben and the Doctor and and Vince make they they sell it to you, you know like they're really scared they're firing flare guns and they're getting rockets ready and stuff and so you're scared I mean at the very very end when you know the model ship hits the rocks you're a bit like oh okay <laughs> but a little underwhelming I, I think it works yeah the model's a little underwhelming but it works for me uh, yeah I like it I don't know if it's a full cracker maybe it's a bit of a clanger but. Yeah, not a full cracker. I think this is a necessary cliffhanger in the sense that you do need these extra characters to make the or ratchet up the tension and the yes. suspense of the story that's to follow. 
And it does make sense just in terms of the, the plotting, I guess, you know, that there would be a ship that runs aground, obviously, uh, when the lighthouse malfunctions. Mm. So all of that makes sense. I just think that it's probably one of those things that if it was um, a modern day story, this would be in the cold open. And after two, three minutes, you've got the shipwreck and then it goes into the episode proper. Um, yeah. So, so not mm. not an enormous cliffhanger, but I can I can understand and appreciate it, even if it's got a little crappy uh, boat that sort of runs aground on, in model shot. I think it. I, I don't think it's aged well. Mm. Um, no. I'd say maybe back on the day when it was first aired, maybe it was a little bit more effective. I'm not sure. I think it's. I think it's important. I don't know that it fits as a cliffhanger for an episode of Doctor Who, though. I am actually going to give it a clanger. Fair enough, yeah. I don't think even a 70s kid thinks that boat looks good. <laughs> you know I mean? But hey, I'm not trying to beat up on it. I, I've got a soft spot for it. All right. Uh, all right, lads, shall we move on to episode two? As old Reuben stokes the boiler, the others hear a blood-curdling scream echoing from the bowels of the lighthouse. Now, we're obviously led to believe that the scream is from Reuben. Yeah, I like this. Um, this is great. And it's particularly effective because it coincides with the blast of the foghorn as well. Yes, mm. it does. Yeah, I think this is this is wonderful. This is a cracker. I like it too. I'm going to give it a cracker. Yeah, blood curdling. I, yeah, I love the foghorn. I just love the foghorn all the way throughout, but it's really effective here. It's a bit of a cracker for but me. But like you say, Steve, the way it coincides with the scream is... Yeah, really effective. The one thing that would make it even more of a cracker is if we actually got to see Ruben's pained expression. But of course, you can't because we have no. in part three this understanding that he's still Ruben rather than the Ruben, uh, the written Ruben. So yeah, uh, yeah understand why it's 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 cut that way and it sort of finishes with uh, with Skinsail and, and Adelaide sort of terrified. Mm. Gentlemen, if we're all in agreement, we should move on to episode three. <laughs> now, this is a quite a powerful Tom Baker line. Mm. I really love this one, and it's more to do with the gravitas of the performance from Tom Baker, but I also think it's really cool at what it signifies. Leland, I've made a terrible mistake. I thought I'd locked the enemy out. Instead, I've locked it in with us. Brilliant. Yeah, it's great. I thought that was really cool. Good bit of writing and great delivery. It's a definite cracker for me. Yeah, cracker for me. Those Tom Baker eyes, you know, like... Yeah, look, I think it's a cracker as well. There's uh, that wonderful moment where the infallible Doctor admits to a mistake, but also when we cast our mind back to what's happened that episode and particularly the odd goings-on with Reuben, it's very, very clear, or at least it should be, I guess, uh, who the Reuben is and the fact that it's trapped in there with him makes it even more terrifying and raises the stakes and sets up a fantastic part four. Mm. I think episode three is, is probably the strongest of the four and for it to end this way is just... Brilliant. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think episode three is my favourite from the whole story. Moving on to episode four, gentlemen, and our final cliffhanger. Now, this is an interesting one. We've got to unwrap this one. Leela thinks she's blind. The Doctor recites a Wilfred Gibson poem, which we've already mentioned, called The Flannan Isle. In the shadows of the rocks, as they creep through the shadows, they enter the TARDIS, and his voice reverbs everywhere, mm-hmm. which I never quite understood. I guess... Yeah, it's just a lend, lend it gravitas, right? It's um. Yeah, I guess so. I don't hate it. Maybe a maybe a touch unnecessary, sure. a little confusing, but I get I get the importance of the poem, and mm. I get the importance of why they wanted to keep the poem in the final scene, and why they wanted to really make it stand out. 
I was kind of surprised and impressed that they end this one not with a crap joke, but with a but with a poem. Mm. Um, and it's like just another example of like Terence Dix and maybe like Robert Holmes not dumbing it down, not like not like mm. um, writing it down to mm. kids. Like they're giving like your your average like seven year, to ten year old who's watching this isn't or twelve year old mm. who's watching this is not going to really get the significance of the poem but they're going to know that it means something and it means something heavy and and and, and it's creepy the way they've done it yeah. it's mm. creepy that it's like leela's almost like backing off from the doctor as he mm. approaches her in the shadows you can see, see his eyes and his teeth pretty much yeah. as he's reciting the poem and it's it's odd like yeah. it's unsettling but i like it yeah, yeah particularly haunting way to to close a particularly haunting story so i, I think in this context it very much works cracker yeah yeah for me it's strange. It's definitely like you said, Cole. It's odd. It's strange and it's powerful. And I just love that they're not sort of um, dumbing it down for kids. You know, they're putting a poem at yeah. the end to make you think. Yeah. I'm just brilliant. Yeah, it's cool. It's a uh, cracker for me. Yeah. We get one awesome final model shot of the whole the whole set, the whole landscape. Mm. And, uh, I just, just it's great. <laughs> yeah, I love it too. Yeah. Okay, and that brings us to the end of Crackers or Clangers. All right, so we're going to share the love at this point, uh, and we're going to do something a little bit different, Cole. Yeah, guys. We're sharing the love with all of you this episode. Uh, it's not so much about other amazing podcasts or other amazing Doctor Who related things that, that we've found out and want to share with you. We're actually wanting to share a message with you. And that message is stay safe and stay home because we are all going to get through this. Right now, we're all going through a pretty frightening time in the world. It's all very uncertain. It's all very new. But uh, we're going to be okay. Stay safe. Stay home. Obey social distancing, call a friend, call a family member if they're lonely. We can still talk to each other. We can still see each other over the internet, be it FaceTime or Skype, like I'm doing with the lads right now. Mm. Yeah, yeah. But in these scary times, always know that it's going to be okay. Stay safe, stay home. Sweet dogs. Yeah, because we love you. Yeah, take care of yourselves. Definitely. And a quick shout out this time to Candace Douglas, who was very kind enough to provide the scan of the cover that you see as the cover art for this month. Thank you very much, Candace. You can buy Horror of Fang Rock from BBC Online or the usual outlets. You can follow New to Who on Twitter at, at New to Who Podcast and also Facebook or even email us at New to Who Podcast at gmail.com. All our episodes can be found at newtohu.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you feel like subscribing or leaving a bajillion star review, these things are a big help to us. We hate goodbyes, so until next time, I'm Stephen. I'm Carl. And I'm Dan. Thanks for having us. See you guys. Be seeing you.